welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and I am joined by Tamara Hajat, a pediatric gastroenterologist just down the street at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Hi, Tamara. Hi, Jen. I How am are you doing? What? We haven't visited each other. I know. We really need to. Yeah. It's only an hour. It is. It is. And then you said that there's a lot of good fall places in Columbus. Mm-hmm. So I need to visit Columbus. Please do. We actually, early in Bell Sounds, Peter and I took a trip and we interviewed Dr. Hybe and we interviewed Dr. Balasheri and it was just a day trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I need so we to visit plan Columbus it. for sure. For sure. Let's plan it this summer. <laughs> Um, the other thing you could come and see is my garden. I just planted my very first raised bed garden ever. Wow. What did you plant in that garden? Tomatoes, peppers, herbs, radishes, which is like my new obsession and strawberries. Ooh, those are good ones. Do you yes. have a green thumb? No, not at all. Everything I've ever planted has not survived, but this is a very valiant attempt. I read a book. I Ooh. did a digging. I have everything in that I need. That's good. I mean, for me, I buy plants and I water them once a week. If they survive, they survive. If they don't, I replace them with plastic plants. <laughs> so today is another special and a fun episode. We have Dr. Elizabeth Maletti to talk about the care of LGBTQ patients. And we're doing so to honor Pride Month. Yes, so um, we are celebrating Pride Month and we are raising awareness for our patients from the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, Dr. Melody is the perfect person to do that. Dr. Melody is a pediatric gastroenterologist from uh, Sunrise Children's Hospital. We heard her talk at NASPGIN last year. We were like, we have to have her on the podcast. So this is it. And I think there's a lot for us as physicians to be advocating for our patients. And I think it was a really good conversation. And I learned a lot. I think all of our listeners will get a lot as well. You know, after the recording, I went and made sure that I have my pronouns on my badge. And then I have the flag to support LGBTQ plus, and then I have the Black Lives Matter flag on my badge. So love that. So um, on to the show. Yeah. Welcome, Dr. Melody to Bow Sounds. We're excited to have you today. We've been uh, wanting to have you for a long, long time, especially after your NASPGAN presentation, which was amazing. I'm so excited to be here. You have no idea. When I got your email asking me to be on the podcast, I called my wife and I'm like, I get to meet NASPGAN celebrities. I, I really am so thrilled to be here and I'm excited to talk about this important topic that's near and dear to my heart. We usually start a, a podcast with asking you some questions to get to know you. So in one sentence, how would you describe yourself? Honestly, I went to my Twitter handle uh-huh. <laughs> to find the answer because you only get the one line. So I am a wife, mom, foodie, and pediatric gastroenterologist. Foodie. Not necessarily in that order. What's your favorite food? <laughs> Honestly, I, I feel like I love all food. So I was born in Malaysia. 
There's certainly a significant amount of fantastic Asian food in Southeast Asia, but I really feel like I grew to cultivate my love for good food while living in San Francisco during fellowship. I'm good with any and all food. That's pretty cool. I like seafood. That's what I like. I like crabs. I like oysters, shellfish. Oh my gosh. And I like them like pure, no butter, just boiled. Oh, so good. I actually have a a trip planned to Seattle this summer, shortly after this episode comes out. And I am planning on eating seafood every single day because in Ohio, we are landlocked. And so there's just not a lot of opportunity here. There's definitely great food there. So Elizabeth, tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you recommend or a hobby that you recommend. Yeah. So I am an avid podcast um, consumer. (laughs) And I actually love a good streaming service show. I don't know that I have a favorite necessarily, but my current podcast library includes the White Coat Investor um, podcast. I've also been listening to the Life Coach School podcast, which is done by Brooke Castillo. And that's actually been really a really good podcast to listen to. I enjoy Bigger Pockets, which is a real estate podcast. So I'm like all over the wow. place here. And then, of course, Bell Sounds. So those are, those are my four current ones. Thanks for the shout out. <laughs> so what is the White Coat Investor? Yeah, so the White Coat Investor actually is put on by this guy named Jim Dolly. He's an emergency medicine um, physician who about 10, 12 years ago said, you know, if we are smart enough to be physicians, we're actually smart enough to manage our own finances. And so it's a financial podcast and he gives some really sound advice. I think I need to listen to that. I read the book uh, several years ago. I think somebody gifted it to me when I finished my training. Yeah, no, it's a, a great, great book. And he really provi- produces a lot of good content between his blog and his, which is really like a full-fledged business now, and his podcast. So uh, a good one to listen to. Tamara, add it to your list. I will definitely add it to my list. I mean, I can definitely use some tips on how to manage money. <laughs> <laughs> no, we- I feel like uh, uh, as physicians, we don't invest a lot, so... Mm-mm. We we definitely don't get a lot of good um, teaching about this. And yeah. he provides some really good sound advice. So those have been great. But like in terms of shows, I feel like streaming services has completely changed how you consume shows, right? So you can actually have good binge-worthy shows where the whole season gets dropped at the same time. Probably the last couple of shows might have been, oh, Ted Lasso, I think I binged um, recently. the new Dexter, when all when all of the shows popped out, I binged that one. And then Ozark just dropped. So that's on my to-do list. Yeah. I mean, I'm a doctor and I can watch blood, but Dexter? I didn't <laughs> watch it. My roommate from medical school, she's also a pediatric gastroenterologist, actually. She and I watched Dexter and that was my first binged show. Yeah. Dexter was the very first one. You know, the first, like the ending though, for the first Dexter was no good, right? Yeah. But this, this second Dexter, I think made up for for the end of the first one. I was like, oh no, it's too much blood for me. (laughs) It is pretty bloody. Yeah. So June is Pride Month. And for our topic today, we would like to talk about caring for LGBTQ plus patients. 
you gave a great talk at NASPGAN. We loved it so much. And we said we'd love you to talk about caring for LGBTQ patients on bow sounds and release it on Pride Month. So being a part of the LGBTQ community as a patient certainly has impacted um, how I provide care as a provider. I think one of the biggest things that I've noticed as a patient is that care providers often assume gender identity and sexual orientation based on your outward appearance or your gender expression, which has led honestly to some awkward encounters, not necessarily on my end, but I know for my providers, it's been awkward for them. I remember when my wife and I were having our first child and we went to prenatal classes that were mostly filled with heterosexual couples having their first baby as well. And the instructors often would assume that my wife was my friend or my sister or my cousin, right? But almost never did they assume that she was my spouse. And, And this was by no means malicious, right? In terms of their assumption, but it really wasn't even on their radar to assume that we were a lesbian couple. And my first kid was born in 2015. So this is not that long ago. And, you know, when we were filling out our birth certificate, our state actually indicates mother and father for where you include your your names, not parent one and parent two, which some states have changed that to, right? So again, kind of awkward for the lady helping us with filling this out. And it sort of reinforced that we were this marginalized population. So as a provider, I really try to never make any assumptions. And this is true of all of my patients that I care for. And I really work hard on asking plenty of open-ended questions so that I can listen to my patients and provide best care for them in part just by doing that small, small thing. In terms of like importance of bringing awareness um, to how to care for LGBTQ patients, honestly, this can be life-saving for them. Oftentimes these kids are bullied at school, but they may also not be accepted by their family members, which becomes really difficult. And you might actually be the one adult interaction that they have that is positive and reaffirming for them. And literally that can save their life. So this is truly an important topic. And and open-ended questions. I love that. That's the way you kind of get people talking. That's really good insight on how to approach patients. I agree. And, and, you know, we really would like to start with understanding different terminologies to, to better understand our patients from the LGBTQ plus community. Can you tell us what the terminology of LGBTQIAPP plus stands for? Yes. Long, lots of letters. So I'm glad you brought this up as this is important to understand terminology in reference to the LGBTQ population. So LGBTQIAPP plus is this long collection of letters that I feel like gets longer and longer and can be overwhelming for people. And it really stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer or questioning, intersex, asexual or agender, pansexual, polysexual. And then there's the plus, which is really there to include for all others who maybe fall into this category, but really do not identify with one of the letters that are, that's listed. In terms of like purposes of this podcast or just general conversation, I think it's really acceptable to just use the more commonly known LGBTQ um, lettering. 
Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Can you also tell us the definition of cisgender, transgender, non-binary, what queer and what intersex are? So people are using these terms a lot more frequently. And I think that it's important to understand what people mean by cisgender and transgender. Um, cisgender really refers to someone who exclusively identifies as the sex that they were assigned at birth. It's not an, a term that's indicative of gender expression or sexual orientation or hormonal makeup or anything along those lines. It's merely gender identity being the same as what you were assigned at birth. Transgender, on the opposite side of this, refers to someone whose gender identity does not match <clears throat> the sex they were assigned at birth. So if you remember from organic chemistry, cis and trans isomers, right? Cis is to be on the same side mm -hmm. of, and trans is to be on the opposite side of. So that's an easy way to remember these terms. So a transgender male is someone who was assigned female at birth, right? But their gender identity is male. In yeah. terms of non-binary, that's really a preferred term for a person of all genders other than male-female, okay? A person who is non-binary really does not identify with male or female in this binary sense, and they may feel that they fall somewhere in the middle um, of that spectrum. And this is really oftentimes something that someone would use to label themselves. It can be used as an adjective, so someone may say, Jesse is a non-binary person. But it is oftentimes something that you don't label someone as. Someone will label themselves as that, and then you may refer to them as a non-binary person. In terms of queer, queer is actually a little bit more unique because it's an umbrella term for gender and sexual minorities who are not cisgender or and or heterosexual. Okay, so it is a term that's used to indicate sexual orientation or gender identity, which are really two completely separate facets of identity, okay? So gender identity actually often shows up by age two and sexual orientation may not show up until kids are a little bit older, like eight to 10, but queer can indicate just not being straight. Queer can be used as a gender term, which really just indicates not being cisgender. And queer for some people can also be a cultural identity, you know, being a part of the queer community is a frequently used and acceptable terminology. The word queer, however, also has some um, negative connotation. It previously used very much as a hateful slur. So even though it's been mostly reclaimed, I would say to be careful with its use. Okay. That's yeah, good that's, to know. That's good to know. Yeah. In terms of intersex, that's really describing a person with less common combination of hormones, chromosomes, anatomy that's used to assign sex at birth. So many of these examples are like Klinefelter's androgen insensitivity syndrome, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And previously, parents and medical professionals would often assign an intersex infant male or female gender. And they were then permitted also to perform surgical operations to conform the infant's genitalia. And as these people have now grown to adults who've had some of these surgeries, these intersex adults really have spoken out against this practice. And so that is happening much less. And really the term intersex is not interchangeable or synonymous with transgender. And sometimes people will um, confuse that. 
though some intersex people will identify as being transgender, but this term is really a different term than gender identity. And so, you know, you've mentioned the terms gender identity and gender expression a couple times already. Can you also expand on the difference between these terminologies? Mm -hmm. So with gender identity, this is truly one's sense of self. This may be male or female. It might be neither. It might be both, right? So I reference myself as a cisgender female, but gender identity truly is distinct from certainly sexual orientation, but is also distinct from gender expression. So gender expression really is your outward expression of gender. This can be masculine, it can be feminine, again, it can mm -hmm. be both, it could be neither. Gender expression really is more what we wear, maybe our hairstyle, how we behave or express ourselves outwardly. And one person can certainly have lots of different gender expressions, right? So while my gender expression is mostly feminine, my hair is typically long. I tend to have jewelry that's more feminine. I'll wear heels if I'm not in scrubs. But there are definitely times when I present more masculine. My hair might be tied back. I might be in a baseball cap. My outfit may be more masculine. This is very interesting. I think that it's very important to understand these uh, definitions because it really helps us care for them better. Absolutely. So moving on. In June of 2020, the Center for American Progressive had a survey of over 1,500 LGBTQ plus individuals, and they asked them how they're treated by healthcare professionals. And really, the results were disheartening. It showed that about a quarter of these patients faced discrimination or mistreatment. And this led to about 15% of these patients not to seek medical help, whether it's for preventative care, whether it's for active medical illnesses, and I find these results very, very informative, but lets us know that we need to make a change. So can you tell us how, as medical care providers, we can provide a safe place for our LGBTQ plus patients that is judgment-free and non-discriminatory and how to mitigate these uh, disparities? Yeah, so... Providing a judgment-free and non-discriminatory environment is probably one of the best ways to help mitigate those disparities, right? You want to provide an affirming healthcare experience for these patients and really for all of your patients. Um, this really can be done easily, whether you're in um, an academic center, a large academic center with lots of resources, or in a private practice clinic. One of the best and easiest ways to first figure out how to do this is just walk through the doors of your clinic and place yourself in the shoes of an LGBTQ family or patient. You know, when you walk in, what do you see and what do you hear around you? And based on that, you can start to develop a welcoming office environment. So things like posting non-discriminatory policies where it's visible to everyone. I can tell you that most people will not ever notice that you have posted that policy. But for an LGBTQ patient who might be worried about their experience, they will notice and it will be important to them. Having things like LGBTQ signs, flags, stickers, 
even better, providing unisex bathrooms, right? So they don't have to feel like, oh my gosh, which bathroom can I use? Should I use? Providing resources to them. There are plenty of pamphlets you can get for free from multiple different agencies and certainly providing them respect and confidentiality. The other thing that I oftentimes will see is that clinic forms are actually not inclusive. And changing your clinic forms can be as easy as making the gender section a blank line for someone to fill in instead of making it a binary option. You can list parents as parent one and parent two. And certainly providing staff training is useful. Honestly, after I had Oliver, my first son, and we went through that experience with our filling out our birth certificate, I actually went back to our office forms and thought, oh my gosh, we have mother and father listed on here. We can't do that, right? And we actually changed the forms shortly after I came back from maternity leave. So doing some of these things truly changes your care and provides a much more affirming healthcare environment and definitely mitigates disparities. The other thing is that visibility really matters. Whether you are a person of the LGBTQ community or an ally, if you have on your lanyard or your badge, a pride flag or something that lists your pronouns, uh, I think there are a lot of places actually now where uh, your name is listed and then he, him listed right after, right? So these things are, are also helpful. And then certainly just knowledge of the LGBTQ disparities allow you to approach and treat these patients more fully. Yeah. And that's why we're having this podcast because we want to really spread out the knowledge. And I like the idea of having kind of the the pride flag on your badge. I like when I see an email and it says she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs, and having that on the badge. So I don't have it on my badge, but I'm going to make that change. So my niece bought me this, the you know, those little badge thingies, the, yeah. what are they? Those badge reels, <laughs> um, which was a poop emoji that's in a rainbow flag. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Which I love. And kids love it too. Yeah. That was my favorite Christmas gift. That's pretty awesome. I actually just ordered one yesterday. So hopefully it'll come in the mail, but it's not a poop emoji. So now I might have to go back and look at something a little more <laughs> GI appropriate. Yeah. But seriously, like massive poop emoji, rainbow flag poop emoji. I love it. That's pretty really cool. I do love that. So one of the things <laughs> that our, our hospital did recently is they changed a lot of the bathroom signs. Instead of having the different figures, they actually put toilets. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's a subtle change. And it just yeah. one day when I was walking by, I noticed it. I said, you know, that is a really nice way. Yeah. Yeah. A toilet is a toilet. You know, we can all rainbow poop in it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I mean, if we eat glitter, probably. <laughs> oh, actually, Tamara, that brings me back to that, that uh, thing I sent you recently. So there is a species of jellyfish that apparently poops glitter. And wow. yeah, there's a yeah. video. It's like a deep sea jellyfish. And when it poops, it looks like glitter. Okay, now I need to look for this. 
We'll provide the link in the show notes. <laughs> My kids are going to love that. Yeah, that's pretty great. It should be like all GI mascots. Anyway, so unfortunately, this underlying discrimination or mistreatment, whether it's conscious or subconscious, really, it can lead LGBTQ plus patients to avoid seeking medical help. And unfortunately, in any circumstance, when we avoid seeking medical help, that really puts us at higher risk for a variety of medical conditions. But specifically calling out a few such as eating disorders, STIs, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, suicide ideation, and even attempted suicide. So can you tell us why patients are at increased risk and what impact does this have on our patients and the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, so we do see significant health disparities in this population. And the ones you pointed out specifically are high on the list, the mental health issues, eating disorders, substance abuse, and STIs. There are many factors that impact these issues, but many people identifying as part of the LGBTQ population really face discrimination, family rejection, harassment, fear of violence, And this is on top of other discrimination that they may face based on their race or their class or their immigration status or geography. So oftentimes, people from this population do not have appropriate social support systems, and this ultimately worsens their mental health struggles, which can then lead to unhealthy habits, substance abuse, high-risk activities that increases their risk of STI. Their experiences can and do create fear and mistrust, and oftentimes this will lead them to not disclose or withhold details about their gender identity or sexual orientation. Yeah, and I I find it also important in our IBD uh, patients where if they don't disclose any of their sexual practices, then... I might not know. And that kind of affects their health down the road in terms of illness, mental health, or uh, in terms of their IBD itself. And it's not just limited to our IBD patients. It's also patients with other GI pathologies or diseases. Absolutely. And, you know, bringing up the IBD population, I mean, truly the IBD population and our patients that are really chronically ill typically have to access the just medical care more frequently in general, right? And so if they're already have had poor experiences, they may not come back for their general care that they truly need because their experience has been such that they've not wanted to go through feeling discriminated against. We don't want this for any of our patients, but in particular with our patients that have a chronic illness, we need to be particularly mindful. Yeah. So expanding a little bit more on that, are there any specific GI issues in the LGBTQ plus population that we should be aware of as pediatric gastroenterologists? Yeah. So overall, there are not a ton of GI specific issues, but there are a couple that I think are important to know. The first one really is actually in hepatitis B. Um, There are higher rates of hepatitis B in men having sex with men, and screening really should be considered and done in this population. 
The other thing that we see is that within the lesbian population, obesity rates truly are higher. And of course, this can then translate to issues with fatty liver and other comorbidities associated with that. Area of consideration are in nutrition management for our transgender patients in particular. So this is particularly true for those who may choose to undergo hormone therapy. Not all transgender patients want to or will undergo um, hormone therapy, but in your patients who do, uh, you need to understand that often within three to six months of starting therapy, they will have body composition changes, whether that's hormone therapy to feminize or masculinize the body. And oftentimes these therapies can impact certainly their risk for cervical or breast cancer, or it can influence their bone mineralization or alter lipid and insulin metabolism. So a great way often to monitor for this and to provide care for this is using BMI. Another option is to use waist circumference as a, a way to monitor them. So for instance, we know that individuals who have a waist 40 inches in individuals who are assigned male at birth or above 35 inches for those assigned female at birth are associated with higher um, risk for chronic conditions like type 2 diabetes and heart disease, hypertension, right? So using the waist circumference as as a way to help care for these transgender patients who may have body composition changes with their hormone therapy is a good way to help monitor their care and help to provide them guidance on how to make changes. Yeah. And just to kind of ask a little bit more about the hepatitis B, do you usually kind of do serologies and reboost them until they get positive titer? How do you approach that? Yeah. So certainly in my patients with autoimmune disease, I'll, I'll often check for this. And depending on their levels, may do one booster if they do have some, some indication of a low level titer. And I'll recheck them after that. If there's no detection of any titer level, then I'll have them go ahead and do all three immunizations. And then I'll recheck them down the road. I really started thinking about my own practice and how I can avoid any of these you know, subconscious discrimination. And I certainly hope there have not been situations where I have been discriminatory. Certainly it was not on purpose if it happened. I will say that, you know, when I went through medical school, we didn't have any training on this. And in my current role, I do some informatics. And so your comment about the patient forms, I just want to put a plug out there that we're also not limited electronically, although traditionally male, female have been the buttons that are available. There is the ability to make that change in the yeah. electronic health record as well. So please, as our listeners are listening to this and thinking of their own practice, don't forget that. But, you know, thinking about how we can put this into practice, when and how do you ask or should we ask our pediatric patients about their pronouns? And what advice do you have if the parents, you know, may be against this question or seem defensive about it? What's the best approach here? Yeah, so I think that this may vary depending on comfort level of the provider. 
what part of the country you are in, expectations of the center that you work at. Okay. While I think that some people will find it ideal to walk into your patient encounter with a new family and introduce yourself, tell them your correct pronouns and ask for theirs, right? You may say, hi, I'm Dr. Maletti. My pronouns are she, her, what are yours, right? Which seems like a fairly benign and easy way to do this. And this really is a wonderful way to show patients love um, that. Yeah. that there is an affirming environment, right? And ideally can be done. However, there are scenarios where this can be difficult and there are scenarios where it's uncomfortable for individuals, both from a provider perspective and a family perspective, right? Some providers may actually not be comfortable with revealing their pronouns maybe their pronouns are they and them and they may be from an older generation, right? So I think that depending on where you are in the country, sometimes this can alienate some of your new patient and families. And while that truly hurts me to say that, I understand that that's currently the reality. So in scenarios where you are not directly asking about pronouns, really pay close attention to the way the parents speak about their children or how the patient speaks about themselves, right? Many families will come out and tell you, my child's a transgender male and they will use their pronouns appropriately. I've had families come in and reference their child as they, them during the entire conversation. And I pick up on that and I'll ask, are these your correct pronouns? And then I'll start using it. Sometimes I'll get it wrong. Okay, so in particular, if I have a patient that I've seen for a long time and they just recently disclosed their gender identity to me, right at the moment that they disclose, I make that switch. But if I get it wrong and use the wrong pronoun, I apologize, I correct myself, and I keep going. And sometimes I'll tell the kids, hey, listen, if I get it wrong and I don't catch myself, you correct me. And I think that that actually makes a big difference to them. There are likely going to be people who are defensive about the question. And I think it is reasonable to anticipate that that may occur, especially if you're going in and introducing yourself with your pronouns. And I think that a good way to respond may be saying something like, thank you for telling me that you're upset by this question. I appreciate that feedback. The question is just meant to be respectful and to avoid any assumptions, and I hope we can move forward from this. And I think most individuals um, will recover from that. In some scenarios, they may not, and that's okay too. And I think the point that you brought out about sometimes it may slip, like the wrong pronoun may come out. And I think it is important to empower our patient in any situation to correct us if we say something incorrect. You know, whether that's I'm summarizing this medical history and I say something slightly incorrect or if I use a wrong pronoun, because otherwise, you know, my understanding may be incorrect or I may have done it on accident. And if you don't say something, I may never know. And Jen, I really love your idea about the informatics. And I think we can add a button for pronouns. Oh, we have that, by the way. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Like somebody can say my pronouns are this or I don't want to disclose. And it can be a my chart thing where teenagers have access to their my chart. And even if their parents are not agreeable to kind of the, the terminology pronouns, then the teenagers themselves can put it in and say, these are my pronouns. I guess the challenging thing is what if we have a patient 
that goes by a certain pronoun. And especially with transgender patients, for example, a transgender female goes by she, her. And the parents, and I've had this multiple times where the parents cannot switch to their pronouns. They are stuck on the gender that they were signed at birth. (laughs) So how do you approach that as a healthcare provider? How do you support the patient? Yeah, I'll see this in, in particular with patients that are just out with their family. And some parents will try to catch themselves and they'll try to make that switch. But other times they will refuse to use their child's correct um, pronouns and they'll insist on misgendering them. When you see that happen, I think that it should be a red flag to you that this patient may actually need more support. Regardless of the situation, I really make it a point to use their correct pronouns. And I really make it a point to not make an error in this scenario as much as I can. And if I do, I apologize and and switch that around. But I've actually had patients call their parents out on it and they'll say something like, see, she gets it right. Why can't you get it right? And just that show of support, I think, provides them with that affirming environment that makes a difference in their day. Even, even if their parent has difficulty with that. I think that there are certainly lots of reasons why parents may continue to misgender their child. Honestly, I think a lot of times it's just that they've for so long yeah. referenced their child as the sex that they were assigned at birth, right? So I really try to provide them with compassion for that. And if they... Um, have questions, I'm always happy to discuss that with them further, in particular if uh, the conversation turns that way. But most parents, at least that I have seen recently, have truly been very supportive of their children and their gender identities, right? So I, a couple of years back, had a little three-year-old who came in and right when she came in, she said, I'm a girl. And that was a key part of what she needed to tell me about why she was seeing me. I'm a girl. And the parents just said, she has said this since she was able to talk and she is a girl. And I said, great, that's how we're approaching this, right? So most families, I think, are like that more and more now, which is great. I do love that toddler confidence. Yes, absolutely. Toddler confidence. (laughs) Absolutely. So I do have one more comment about the EMR, not to harp on that too much, but for all of our listeners, now that our patients are seeing our notes in my chart, be very careful too, because oftentimes note templates have sex assigned at birth as the pronoun that gets auto pulled in, you know, in that first sentence. Yeah. So-and-so is a so-and-so year old male or female. So just be very cognizant of that as well, because that's something that I've seen recently. Right. Yes. That's true. No, I I will oftentimes go in because sometimes it'll auto-populate based on their, sometimes their insurance card has their gender assigned. And I'll oftentimes have to call my staff and say, hey, you need you need to change this because with my HR, we don't have that ability to make that adjustment. Apparently, that's above my pay grade. So somebody else has to make the adjustment for me. <laughs> but, but yes, that's actually super important. Yeah. 
That's true. What resources are there for anyone who wants to learn more and wants to provide support to the LGBTQ community? And also for us physicians, there are not a lot of clinical trials that include LGBTQ patients. And so what resources do you have and what advice do you have for those who may be considering starting a trial and how we can be more inclusive? Yeah. So in terms of resources, certainly there are a ton of great resources online. There's a lgbtqiahealtheducation.org site that is great. I know UCSF actually has some excellent sites with excellent resources for patients and actually for providers. The CDC actually has really good information about LGBTQ health and statistics, and that's actually updated fairly regularly. And then Local centers, actually knowing what your local LGBTQ center has available is oftentimes useful to point your patients in one direction locally. In terms of research, there are limited diversity and inclusion in trials, right? And this can stem from several issues, including mistrust, inadequate engagement with these patients, inaccessibility. Sometimes there's lack of information about clinical trials, and there may be lack of comfort with the research process. So if we improve our communication with this population and improve our trust with this population, that's actually a great way to be able to be more inclusive to this population, in particular, if we're doing patient trials. Yeah. And I think maybe having like specific funds or grants specifically to do research for the LGBTQ community. So Dr. Melody, it's been great having you on this podcast. Once again, thank you for your time. I feel like I learned a lot. Looking back on your career, what has been the most What has been the most valuable advice that you received and what advice do you give to our listeners? So probably the best piece of advice um, has been do what you love. So life is short and it's really important to me that I love my work and that my work remains deeply meaningful to me. But this is true in all facets of life, right? Spend time doing things that you love. The other thing that I have learned and I think good advice for everyone is really that compassion is not just for other people. And this actually took me a long time to learn that it's important to have self-compassion. And I, I think since learning that, I've been able to show up really as a better version of myself for my family, for my friends, my patients. So self-compassion is important. Yeah, I sometimes remind myself, like, I need to treat myself the way that I treat other people. So if somebody came to me in a situation and said, this is my situation and they're being hard on themselves, I tell them to not be hard on themselves. So I come to myself for (laughs) a certain situation and I kind of, it's not split personality, but you know, you're like, you're like the, the the tough person on yourself, but then you're the compassionate person on yourself. (laughs) It's actually a hard, um, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. We're so used to true. being hard on ourselves. It's right? true. And, and sometimes, sometimes that's not what you need. It's true. It's so. true. It's true. And as we're closing the episode, do you have any final words for our listeners? Yes. So honestly, I, I just 
appreciate that that you guys have created this amazing podcast and I appreciate everyone who yeah. has turned in to, to listen to this topic. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. We hope to see you in person sometime. Yes. Yes. How's the baby? 50th anniversary. Yes. We're excited yes. about that. We have for so sure, much great right? stuff for that. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm so excited about being in person and seeing yeah. everyone at the yeah. meeting. Yeah. Right. Bye, everyone. Bye, Jen. <laughs> what a great time. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. We hope you go to the link on our show notes to claim your CME for that episode. Yeah, get your CME. Make sure you get them. Why not, right? Exactly. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would be really helpful if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast or two or three or four. Doesn't matter. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASCAN Foundation. You can get there through www.nascan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASPGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. All right. Pew, pew, pew. Mm-hmm.